This podcast is intended for mature audiences. It also contains two British people talking about sex. So, um, you're not Chris. How do you know? It's just audio. <laughs> I could just be Christopher's <laughs> sore throat. <laughs> Let's roll. Hello. Welcome to the Teabags and Joysticks. I'm Sai. And I am not Chris. I am Craig. No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing here, Craig? Well, you know, I am the official understudy, as it looks like. (laughs) Oh, I like that. I like that. The official (laughs) understudy. (laughs) No, for our listeners, so Chris, unfortunately, isn't able to join us for this episode. He has... Dealing with some family issues. Everyone is okay. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. It's just he needs to take some time. It's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And Craig has kindly agreed to step in in his stead. Well, you know, I'll never say no to being in people's limelight. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's actually worked out quite well because there's a topic that I've been wanting to cover with you for a while. That I mean, we talked about this what two years ago. Yeah. Um. Like, so we're talking today about. I get like the term I used with you was inclusive kink. So this is kind of how we can structure a kink scene, sort of set one up, talk the conversations that we can have to make sure that you're including people with neurodiversities and disabilities into the scene in a way that you know doesn't other them, etc. Yeah. So this stems from you came onto the Kinky Boys podcast and we talked about like the fact that we're both neurodivergent and mm-hmm. sort of implications in play. And so this is sort of a continuation of that. It's almost a part two. Like yeah. I'll put a link over to the episode that we did over at Kinky Boys into the description. But before we get into that, we uh, need to hit the tea. Yes. So what is your tea? My tea this week... I think anyone would have had to have been under a rock to not hear about the Apple. They're calling it an AR headset. It's not an AR headset. It's a VR headset. Let's mm-hmm. let's like put this right. They're just trying not to go head to head with certain companies. But I have you seen any of this? Yes, yes. The thirty-five thousand dollar headset that basically makes you look like a minion. Right. Okay. It's not just me on the minion thing because no. I, I like I thought either minions or sort of the weirdest swimming goggles I've ever seen. Yeah, because obviously, like it's a big f- lens at the front, which obviously magnifies your eyes. Well, no, it, that's the thing. It doesn't actually magnify your eyes. Oh. It's a screen, so it takes a photo of your face and it creates a screen using a um, what's the worst? You you know when you see the posters that have got like. 3D animations, depending on which yes. which angle you look at them. It's using one of those on a screen. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I thought it was just like um, semi-transparent and projected onto the semi-transparent. That's oh, what I that's thought when I first saw it, when I was looking into it. It's the lenticular screens. Mm. So Apple's doing its typical thing of, hey, we invented a thing. No, they didn't. Like, go and look at any of, any of the VR headsets out there. There's really not much new there at all. The only thing that they... Okay, I will give them, their, as always, their marketing is slick. But I have to look at this and go, who is this for? At $3,500, who is this for? Because it's not your average consumer. Yeah, and 
So I've heard opinions on this. A lot of people are going, well, obviously they're trying to get the high-end consumer first, and as it progresses, it'll like reduce down in price, like a lot of technology does. You saw this with the foldable phones and a lot of other stuff where it starts off extremely pricey. As the generations progress, it will get cheaper. Mm. But at the same time, Apple tends not to lower its product price. And this is exactly what mm-hmm. I was about to say, because, you know, I somehow don't remember that happening with the iPhone. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like the iPhone, like I was reading something on this earlier and they made a really good point. The iPhone, they can kind of justify because you need a phone. Well, okay, you don't need a phone, but in the modern world, like most people need a phone and it's an item of necessity and therefore you're more likely to be willing to pay a higher price for it. Yeah, VR headsets at three and a half thousand pounds. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm aware the Oculus etc. are not cheap, but come on. Yeah, you can do better than that. That is Apple price gouging at its worst. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I kind of look at Apple and go, "That's their mo, isn't it?" It's just like you can yeah. build an Apple system for half the price of what it actually costs. Yeah. So you know, but I don't know. That's my tea. It's just like, like why? My tea is yeah. essentially just why Apple. Just why. <laughs> Well, obviously, they're trying. Everyone is trying to break into this sort of VR slash AR space, and they've people have been trying for a while. It's actually an interesting coincidence because I was listening to a podcast episode where I was dissecting the failures of Google Glass. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and a lot of it was it started at a massive price point most people couldn't afford. Um, mm. Was one of the big downfalls of it. And of course, the other thing was the social perception, because you have the phenomenon of the term was glass holes. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if you remember Facebook trying something similar with Ray-Ban. Yes, which also didn't um, No, it didn't. And that went very quiet very quickly, didn't it? Um, I don't know. It's like VR and AR is one of these technologies that they keep trying to make happen. And it's either just not there or people in the real world don't want it as much as they think they do. I mean, there is also the thing, and maybe this is me, because we're on a little bit of a hangover from having done dating apps. Like, the gays haven't adopted it. (laughs) Quite (laughs) frankly, the gays hasn't, the queer scene has not adopted it. You look at dating apps and how they took off, like the quiz, quiz adopted it. You yeah. look at the mobile technology, etc. The quiz adopted it first and started using it for their thing. It's just like, like Apple and everyone is missing a trick. Market it to the quiz. Uh, I mean, I did see a really <laughs> funny post. It was a picture of the like uh, uh, still of a guy wearing them with his eyes on show, and the mm-hmm. tag they put on it was just "Gooning's going to become so interesting." Like the Gooners would. I God think damn it. Go for it. God fucking damn it. That's why they've done it. <laughs> oh, God fucking damn it. They had a gay on marketing. <laughs> of course they did. It's run by Tim. Oh. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that. <laughs> okay, touche, good sir. Touche. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, that's my tea. It's just like, I don't get it. And I'm looking at, like, there's people I know that are into tech, etc. that have just gone wild over it. And I'm just like, although to be fair, this is my attitude with most things Apple, but just yeah. why? I mean, I have to say, Apple does have a reputation of being the one company that can kind of 
change people's opinions and make things work. Oh, don't get me wrong. Apple's marketing is slick as all hell. Yeah. Do not mistake me for a second. Apple's marketing is impressive. But as someone who's heavily into tech, I look at a lot of Apple's marketing where they're claiming, oh, we're the first to do it. And I'm sat there going, who is lapping this up? Oh, yeah. By now, I think it. I think it's fairly obvious that everyone's sort of, well, I would hope most people have realized that Apple don't do things like they don't make things first. They're just very good at marketing them and very good, or at least they were, at sort of UI integration. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's where they possibly cracked the code with the yeah. VR thing. But even Someone then, once described it as... It's not for me. Apple isn't a technology company, it's a recipe company. They know how to put things together Ooh. in a way that works. Oh, I like that. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I really like that. Fair enough. Well, I mean, do you have tea yourself, or would uh, we like to move on to the... Uh... I have no tea for this week. No tea. Yeah. Fair enough. Just water yeah. for the gentleman, yes. please. <laughs> so, let's head into the bag, then. <laughs> so, would you like to open this up uh, and just give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself, because our listeners may not be familiar with the show that we did over on, on mm-hmm. uh, Kinky Boys... So, yeah. So, I am neurodivergent. I am both on the autistic spectrum and ADHD spectrum. Um, Obviously, this, and in a lot of ways, this uh, interfaces with my queerness. Um, Like a lot of neurodivergent people, I consider myself non-binary. Because Mm. there is a statistical um, bump with neurodivergent people considering themselves non-binary or being non-binary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also it interplays with my kinks a lot, like sensory deprivation, um, a lot of the mental kink, like mental side of things plays a lot into my needs and as an autistic person around mm-hmm. sensory issues, um, processing issues, so forth. And yeah, we have talked about this previously on my podcast. And yep. Yeah. And it's like the last conversation that we had about all of this was fascinating. I think we went into just about every every angle at some point. But so to today, I wanted us to speak a little bit more about how do we... So we talk a lot on this show about how negotiation is key. And we mm-hmm. talk about setting up scenes, etc. And we talk about specific kings. But I think it's something that sometimes overlooked a little that... There's this idea of the curb cut effect, which for listeners that aren't familiar with this, the curb cut effect is the idea that by introducing curb cuts, or in the UK we may know them as drop curbs, you benefit not only the people that need them, such as those in wheelchairs, etc., but also society as a whole in ways that you may not immediately think of. So the idea is... You know, if you have a drop curb or a curb cut, someone in a wheelchair can more easily transition from the pavement to the street Uh and vice versa. In addition, people that are on bikes, people with buggies, people with walking difficulties, etc. suddenly can, can also transition a lot easier. And it got me thinking, we kind of have a similar thing possible when it comes to how we negotiate scenes. So, so much of scene negotiation is risk-aware consensual kings and safe saying consensual, (laughs) but 
that's not the only messaging that we need. We need inclusive messaging as well. So I guess the first one that came to my mind is we talked on our, on the interview that we did about how one common thing for me has been that I can overload in a scene. Yes. And that's not really uncommon. You'll often find that with neurodiversity, that is something that can happen, unfortunately, with regularity. And for some people, they are okay with that. Some people will actually almost chase that overload a little bit. But for some people, it can be quite disturbing. And even for the people that do chase it, there's a point where it's too much. And so we wanted to... Like, I was kind of looking at this and going, how do we look at a way to have these conversations with partners without necessarily going, oh, well, it's because you're neurodiverse. And I was wondering, like, let me start off by just saying, like, what are your initial thoughts on this? Well, it's quite interesting because... So we talk about the drop curb effect, and... One of the things about accessibility is most of the time disabled people or people with disabilities, especially like um, from my own experience, they are things neurotypical people or non-disabled people suffer with as well, just to a much lesser degree. Mm -hmm. Um, Like mine is noise overload. Like I can't Mm. go into bars without either noise cancelling headphones or earplugs. Mm Mm-hmm. As soon as I started telling my friends about, like, the earplugs I have, because um, they're a brand called Loop, I believe, mm-hmm. a lot of my neurotypical friends also started getting them. Oh, really? Because even okay. though they don't get fully overwhelmed like I do by the noise, mm-hmm. being in a crowded bar is still an unpleasant experience. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, so much of... So much of... I guess the queer kink scenes socialization happens in this environment that is really weirdly non-conducive to what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, (laughs) I, I have always been quite hard on the recon party about the fact that in their bondage areas, they have quite loud music. Mm. Now for bondage, when you need open communication with your partner, having uh, speakers right at the back of the room blaring out stuff is mm-hmm. really not great for that. No, it's really not. No. Like, I accept, like, most people who go to a recon party, I get the impression they're there for the dark room and the dance floor. And they're not mm-hmm. there for sort of serious, intricate play. Okay. So, like, I accept... I know, haven't actually been to a recon yeah, party. Yeah. I should preface this at this moment and go, I haven't actually been to one. <laughs> well, the dark room and the dance floors are the biggest section. I'm willing to go, okay, they are for people looking more for that than, like, intricate mm. play. Like, I'm probably not the audience they're looking for. But I still think if you're having, like, a bondage section, you should think about sensory, oh, yeah. sound, crowdedness... I would say all that and just general consent. Yeah. Because if you can't hear your partner telling you that there is a problem or telling you that they've hit Mm -hmm. their limit, you've got a serious issue there. Oh, yeah. I remember them talking about an occasion where the exact 
issue happened on i think it was gray dancers rope cast mm. i don't know if that's still going but yeah he talked about a situation where a friend and their partner had a serious issue because um the partner safe worded but the music was so loud he didn't hear oh, them. wow yes and obviously that led to a very painful yeah. situation interesting so i mean i guess kind of the first thing that we could really say here with regards to sort of hey like making sure that you're you're sort of setting up your environment in a way that's going to be conducive for everyone and kind of taking that coca is sort of be aware of the fact that sort of like i don't know anyone that doesn't mind a bit of good music playing sort of during the scene sort of thing i'm rather partial to a backing track as it were (laughs) but like make sure it's not at a level that it's interfering with you being able to communicate and not at a level that's going to cause distress. Exactly. And I think it uh, there is an example I want to bring up that sprang off of um, our last episode about this. Sure. Uh, did you see the Twitter post where someone had made a essentially a clicker for their partner? No, I missed this. Oh yeah, it's a small handheld device where as long as it's held down, um, mm-hmm. it's silent. But as soon as they let go, the a buzzer goes off. And that oh, was interesting. That was directly because um, their partner has the same issue with me, which is when they're sensory overloaded, they tend to go mute and shut down. Right. And obviously, okay. that brings in the issue of if I'm new, I can't fully communicate when I need people to stop, especially if I'm mm. being overloaded. So this gives a non-verbal way to sort of signal to your partner, like you need out of the bondage or out of the situation. Yeah, And of course, it goes to the drop curb effect, where as soon as you start realising that, it's like, well, if I want to gag, blindfold, and tie up my partner, can they safe word? Like, even if they're Mm. neurotypical? Well, this device gives a perfect solution to that. Oh, no, that's really good. Mm. So one thing that me and Chris do is... So Chris is very much... Uh, like I will absolutely take my hat off to Chris because his rope work is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know I enjoy it, but I can't always um verbalize what I'm what I'm sort of feeling in those moments because it can get quite intense because I've got that much yeah kind of sensory input. But one thing that we have is we always have arranged a non-verbal safe word. So whether that be uh, a set of taps or it be something that we hold in our hand that we can drop. Yes. So that, it, you know, this is that's like a really simple mm-hmm. way of doing it for people. Like have something that they can hold that sort of they can drop it. And ideally it wants to be something with not heavy, but just that little bit of weight that so, you know, if you as the Dom are sort of up in their personal space sort of thing, you can't see it drop straight away. You can hear it. You know, something that just has that little bit of weight just so you know something's happened. Oh, that's a great system. Mm. Um, it actually, the non-verbal taps that we have came about in a really interesting way. Um, because it's always a set beat that I... I didn't realize I'd done this, so I set this up with Chris for me, of if I tap in this way, you need to let me out. What I didn't realize is, the tap that I'd set is also the same tap that I default to 
when I am in sensory overload. And it was an entirely oh. subconscious thing that I had ended up setting the two as the same thing. Oh, so, that's interesting. Like, I can see why you'd naturally do that. Mm. And it, like, it, there was no conscious thought behind it. And I didn't even realise this was a thing until I was playing with a partner, what, about a month or two ago. I hit a sensory overload point and had to tap out. But interestingly, I'd forgotten to actually communicate the nonverbal. And this is kind of why I wanted to have this talk as well, because like I think this is something that all partners should be aware of to help mm-hmm. sort of set these things up. But like I'd started doing that tap. And thankfully they they were familiar I'd already explained to them I'm autistic, but thankfully they were familiar enough sort of with stimming behaviours to realise like this wasn't a good stim, as it were. Yeah. So, yeah. That's really interesting. I think that's another one that we can sort of chalk up into the inclusive kink thing of sort of make sure that you have, like, both a verbal and non-verbal safe word or safety communication. Because I know some people might want sort sort of... My mind always goes to, like, the yellow and the red sort of thing. Yeah. If you're verbal. Like... At least have the tap B or the tap the item, whatever it is, be a minimum of a yellow of a, you know, I need you to stop so I can talk. Because then yeah. from there, like, you can get an idea like, okay, one, can they talk? Because if not, then consider it in a, a red immediately. Or two, if it's a case of they're on that cusp, they can tell you what they need. Oh, yeah. Like, just that, just that pause where you can have a break from things. Oh, yeah. And to sort of let the what what i would describe as the mental pressure to go down oh yeah it's absolutely. very important yeah yeah and may, maybe i should just in, in inject here what we said about well what i said i should say in our interview that we did over on kinky boys which is mm-hmm. for those that aren't familiar with what an overload is uh it's slightly different for every person but it's usually the point where sensory input And some other things, but usually sensory input gets overwhelming and it can feel like a physical pressure. Sound can feel physical, smell can feel physical in that moment. Yeah, and it is incredibly overwhelming. Um, So it's sort of like one thing with autistic people is we tend to process emotions physically. Mm. As in, like we talked about stimming, like... Uh, when I'm in distress or angry or feeling quite a powerful emotion, I will drum the back of my neck yep. quite severely um, or like sort of wave, like yeah, wave yeah. my hands, like <laughs> tapping my knee. Like you can't see it because it's on video, but like, yeah. Yeah, I, I started agreeing with it and then realized that this is an yeah. audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and, and it is very interesting because uh, like obviously... I was diagnosed as an adult as autistic, so I've sort Mm -hmm. of, like, been learning how my body works several years too late, as it were. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really found interesting was when I went for my tattoo. Oh. Uh, So I have a small tattoo on the small of my back, uh, Mm -hmm. which is quite a sensitive area. It has a lot of nerve endings. Um, And I was sort of nearing my limit of being able to take the pain at the time. Okay. And then I realized I had defaulted to a behavior I had learned where I f- like was tensing my entire body. And I tense oh. my entire body 
to in in order to mask to not stim and as soon as i realized i don't have to do this and i started sort of wiggling my feet and drumming my hands the pain level itself felt like it went way down interesting like i could actually channel the pain out of myself and into the stim and that was how i effectively processed it you see, okay, so the the reason that this is kind of fascinating to me so much is, so I recently got edged by a guy for the first time. Oh. And I don't just mean like he jerked me off and sort of stopped sort of thing, but no, like this guy, he knew what he was doing, should we say, <laughs> and was able to make me ride it. And I realized in that, like, I was having that same tense moment. And then sort of when I caught that breath and I sort of started just sort of letting myself, yeah. like like I said, I have a different type of stim for when I'm in distress versus when I'm sort of just processing. When I started doing the processing one, like one, he loved it. And that was a bit mm-hmm. of a mind fuck because I've never had a guy, like, don't get me wrong, like, love Chris to pieces, but he even with Chris, like, because I'm usually, he's dumb, he's never seen that side of it for me yeah. in the kink scene. But two, like, having someone really enjoy seeing that was a bit of a, like, oh, okay. And then the other side of it was kind of my my threshold shifted, as it were, of what I was able to take up to, if that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> and there's, there have been, been studies on this. Autistic people actually tend to, in general, have a higher pain tolerance than neurotypical people. Which, which is weird... Because we have a much, much lower um, tolerance of minor discomfort. You give us socks with a weird stitching around the toes. Oh, God, it's no. It's awful. No, no. That's, but, ah, yeah, don't, yeah, but don't. active pain, we can apparently take really well compared to most other people. And I do yeah. think it is in, in that physical processing through stimming that we can do that. Oh, that's interesting. So I th- I'd like so kind of looking at how do we build this into kind of an inclusive scene type of thing. Mm-hmm. One like yes, there's that thing of sort of have that conversation about nonverbal safe words, etc. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing as well is have that conversation about what does overwhelmed look like for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing to know with any play partner because we all want to we all want to kind of have this idea that you know. We'll we'll do a scene and we'll be a, a, a okay. We've got this safe word. We can do whatever, okay? And that's great. Don't get me wrong. Should always have a safe word. Rack and SSC principles, etc. But what happens when that fails? Like, yeah. what's the fallback? What's like? Because that my thing is, as a dom, whenever I play with someone, I am watching everything. And this is something that has been commented on both positive and negative for me. Like, I watch everything because I want to know that what I'm doing is pleasurable for you. And what mm-hmm. I'm doing is, like, pushing all the right buttons and we're getting through, like, a really in- enjoyable scene, etc. But I also want to know you're okay. Yeah. And it would not be the first time that I have stopped a scene because I cannot be sure that the person is okay. And then they've come to me afterwards and gone, why did you stop? No. And it's just like, because the, your behavior wasn't giving me the signs that I need to know that everything is all right. So I stopped the scene. Which, you know, 
absolutely what you should do if you're in that position. Uh, but then they said to me, it's just like, okay, I see what you're saying, but I was all right. And so I've started having conversations with subs of going, right, if we're doing anything that's sensory intense, so bondage, sort of spanking, mm -hmm. etc., I now ask, what does overwhelmed look like for you? Yeah, and I think that's a very important thing, just to say, like, how do you act? Like, it goes back to that thing of we kind of expect the perfect dom to kind of be psychic to just mm. intuitively know how to read everyone's body and intuitively yep. know exactly what buttons to push and when but you do have to explain like this is what happens when i'm like happily simulated this is what i'm like in bed this is what i'm like when it's a distressing thing but i can take this is how i process pain so you may see me doing this that doesn't automatically mean stop yeah yeah. But all of these are conversations that you should have, honestly, I think, with all your partners, like mm. regardless of neurodiversity or disability. And I mean, it's that thing of sort of, we, like, we're both talking about this from a neurodiverse standpoint. I would love to have this conversation with someone from a physical disability oh, yeah. point, if, they, if they're willing to reach out. But um, it's that thing of, there are always, there are always things you don't know. Yeah. And it's important that as you do your negotiation, you bear that in mind and you have those conversations. And I think it's one of those things that hookup apps have kind of ruined the sort of slower nature of that conversation. Because everyone wants it now, now, now. Like, there are guys that I have been doing negotiations with now for a little while, and the scenes are so much better. You know, the the guy that I was talking about that was edging me, like, we have been we had been talking for three, four weeks before we met. And it was just like, okay, he knows exactly what I want. He knows exactly what to do. Like, yes, there was some, some communication that could be improved and it will be over time. That's kind of the nature of it, I think, to some degree. You never get... I don't think there's a perfect negotiation. I don't think there is that thing where everything will have come up because some of it you don't know until you get to a scene. Yeah. You know, but I think we can start building those conversations. And mm -hmm. I think being aware of some of the things that we've been talking about here is really good for doing that. Not just for people in neurodiversity, but in general. Yeah. I mean, I really would like to talk to someone uh, on the physical disability side of this. Mm. Um, Cause I mean, to talk about inclusivity in the scene, one of the big problems, so context, I'm part of a leather club and we mm -hmm. sort of organize events. That's the main thing the leather club is for. Um, one thing that's become apparent is it is really hard to find an accessible venue. Yes. Like I'm, I'm in London, like all, most of the gay bars and clubs are like legacy historic buildings. Yep. Because... Like, there are no new gay bars being built. There are no new queer spaces really being built. Mm -hmm. Like, so most of them aren't up to sort of a modern code. And because they're like really old buildings protected, don't have to be. Yeah. But that means like trying to create a physically inclusive space has become really difficult. Oh, yeah. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Like, Nowhere we have, like, in our list of possible venues is wheelchair accessible. And it's like, we would love to have a space that's wheelchair accessible, except there are no wheelchair accessible 
gay bars that are also willing to host kink nights. Yeah, and I, and it's interesting, isn't it, how some of this is historical context yeah. where, yes, you know, I mean, if you go to Manchester, for example, the mm-hmm. Eagle uh, Basement... Uh, is it Basement Bar? The one that's under the Molly House? The Mine House? I might have the name wrong. Um, but basically, a lot of these places are underground. Yeah. And part of it is from that history of the fact that they had mm-hmm. to be hidden. You know? They were... So to, in some cases, they were disguised as the goods entrance to a, a different bar that was kind of the beard on top. Yeah. You know? And it's kind of, some of it is that historical context, but some of it is also like, there is that lack of willingness to build these new spaces, or more to the point, I think, and this is just me kind of speaking kind of solo with not much to back this up, I think there is a lack of willingness in local authorities to license oh, definitely. for this kind of space. Definitely. Like, especially, so... Again, my experience has been around London. Like, Soho is run by Westminster Council, who are mm. famously strict and easygoing when it comes to shutting down gay bars, but trying to get um, new licenses is really difficult. Oh, yeah, but if you want to open a strip bar yeah, with, with female, uh, mm-hmm. female staff... You'll have a lot easier time getting that license. Yeah. I'm not saying you're guaranteed it, but you'll oh. have an easier time. Yes. Yeah, Soho has really starting to fully gentrify. So even that's starting to become more mm-hmm. difficult. Oh, no. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to sort of diminish that that's, that's happening. And, and also, don't get me wrong, anyone taking that out of context, like, I fully support sex workers being sort of able to do what they want with their body. My, yeah. my thing is, we should have an even application of these rules. Yeah. Exactly. It's that thing of, it should be across the board, but it always tends to happen to the queerer spaces first. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But it's it's coming back to the main topic. It's sort of even I think like taking. And I mean, I can only speak to a certain amount because I I do have a couple of physical disabilities. But sort of in terms of the conversation we're having right now, it's not necessarily the forefront item. I think it's a good thing to just have those conversations. Like one thing that I've said to partners in the past, especially if I'm doing bondage, is do you have any health conditions I should know? Because I think that's a perfectly fair mm-hmm. question. And that should be one of the standard questions asked, I feel. Yeah. Like, if someone's... Epi- like, So yeah, I was in a bondage class where one of the members had an epileptic fit. Mm. And, you know, from that day on, I've always felt like you need to talk to people and ask if stuff like that is likely to happen. Yeah. And it, yeah, and and when you do, you need to have that conversation of, okay, so you have this disability that may sometimes affect you. What do I need to do in that situation? Do I need yep. to hold you? Do I need to give you space while it happens? What what do you need? Mm-hmm. And to be clear, like, this is not just a disability thing. Like, oh. this is something like, ask in general, like, is there anything I should know? Or, like... I'm not saying, like, be the sort of wrecking ball with it and come in and go, oh, you know, you've got this. Do I need to do whatever? Like, be be sort of gentle about it but and just say, mm. like, hey, what do I need to know? 
because yeah. that's a perfectly fair question. Because it, like my thing is the reason I, I do this particularly with bondage is one of the big things with bondage to be aware of is circulation problems. I cannot tell just by looking at you, do you have a heart condition, a circulation condition, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I will say to you, you know, is there anything I need to know health-wise? I think that's a perfectly fair question to ask someone. And it's like recently, well, I'd say recently, so, so in the past when I've played with uh, trans guys, for example, the first time I played with a trans guy, I didn't know anything. Full stop. I did not know anything in terms of, like... Are there things I should be worried about? Are there, you know, what's the deal with protection, etc.? What do we need need to do to one make sure you're comfortable, make sure that I'm not sort of stepping on anything that I am not familiar with, etc. And they were really graceful and sort of they they sort of had those conversations with me because it was very clear, like I was approaching this from a I don't know, please teach me angle, as opposed to oh god, what do I do? Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and it, that's that's kind of the thing to remember with inclusive in, this inclusive kind of negotiation. Like, approach it from the angle of like, I don't know. Exactly. Like, just approach it from an angle of open sharing. Yeah, and and again, this kind of gets back into the drop curve effect, where like this is stuff you should be doing already in basic negotiation. It's just yeah. you're having to do it more so to consider disability. Exactly, and this is kind of why I've kept mentioning sort of RAC and SSC as we go, because yeah. both of these things, everything we have spoken about, comes into both of those principles. Mm -hmm. You cannot be risk-aware if you aren't having the conversations around sort of what what mm -hmm. do I need to know, etc. You, ca you cannot be safe and sane and consensual if you're not having these, these conversations about what does safety mean in this context. Yeah. But I think... I think that's kind of a good place mm -hmm. to pause. I think this is going to be a conversation that we probably come back to a few times. Oh, definitely. In different ways. So, thank you very much. So, uh, we do actually have a five-minute marvel that me and Chris did have a chance to, to pre-record before he had to head out. Because we literally came home from Enter the Spider-Verse and recorded it. So, we're going to go nice. straight into that. And me and Craig will be back with you in just a moment. We should head into the five-minute Marvel. There's a lot to cover. There's... There yes. is, and fair warning to everyone, there is going to be Spider-Man spoilers. I'm sorry, this is not avoidable this time. Let's go. I mean, what's the point of doing that without a spoiler? Um, but ending... Oh, fuck them. Fuck them, 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 fuck them. Fuck them. I'm annoyed. I'm really annoyed. They caught me out. Yeah, but also, I mean, that's fine. No, it's not. It doesn't happen. I'm not used to being caught out by a movie. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> the annoying thing is the twist didn't catch me out. The 42 isn't what caught me out. I just didn't expect the hard break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Because I, I think about it, you know, that the last part one, part two film for well for Marvel was Endgame and well Infinity War Endgame and mm -hmm. you know th that was a natural stop point like yeah fighting's finished Thanos won that's the end of the movie right. this one was actually build 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 and then to be continued <laughs> yeah it's like it feels like it's building to the crescendo of that movie and then it just stops yeah what yeah. 
<laughs> but that oh, well. said, what a fucking build, because there I wasn't know. one moment in that movie that I felt like you're playing for time here. No, I thought I thought the build was a bit slow to start off in, in the first like hour of the movie, but then it eventually I realized, oh, this is actually a four-hour movie, so that that's, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even find it slower. To me, it no, no, no. really nicely paced. It was very nicely paced, but I didn't, just didn't feel like it was I don't know, like leading up to the wrap up fast enough. Fair enough. So, like, can we talk a few like spoilers? Yeah. Like, how many different Spider Men did you actually recognize? Because I know that I was going through them and going, oh my God, I know that from my childhood. Oh my God, I know that from that comic book. Oh, well, okay. Not, not that many. <laughs> oh, for me, it's just like, I. There are scenes in there where I'm looking at it going, the Easter egg on hunt on this is going to be insane. Sure. Like, yes. people thought Ready Player One's battle scenes were going to have a lot of Easter eggs. I don't think it's going to come anywhere close. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Depending on what you class as Easter eggs, I guess. Like, there is just the deliberate... obscure references. Yeah, it's a, it's a deliberate thing to just chuck everything in. And that that's, you know. Part of the theme of the movie is yeah, everything is in it. They put the amazing bagman in. <laughs> yeah. And also, can we just like like take a little nod to the editor notes that were in there, which is I love straight it. from comic book pages? I love like it. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to be pouring over those scenes where they are flying through and they're all on screen on slow motion when it comes out just to see what was actually written. Yeah, sometimes it yeah, the, those ones weren't readable. I, I think like, it's I, a I deliberate choice. Yeah. Like, I think it's a very deliberate choice. I think that is like the Easter egg side of it. I think it's one of those things that it's just like, if you're a comic book fan, you're going to totally get what that is. Mm. If you're just a casual fan that's followed the movies, you won't have a clue what's going on. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't class them as Easter eggs. As Easter eggs for me is something you wouldn't wouldn't see at all in the in the first seeing. Mm, maybe I. I think it depends what's going to be in them. I think there's going to be a lot more hid there than people expect. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't doubt. I'm like I'm blown away by like the cast and the storytelling and everything. Can we take a moment though? How gorgeous was the Gwen Stacy universe art style? Yeah. It took a little bit of getting used to for me. But yeah. I, I like how every me, universe looked different. Yeah. It took a little getting used to for me, but I think it was only because I was expecting Miles's art style as the opening, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. But once I kind of got past that, I was fine. Yeah. I also want more British Spider-Man and more... Uh, was it Mum Mumba Hatton? Oh, uh, Mumbatton. Mumbatton, yeah, that's the one. It's like, yeah, Mumbai and Manhattan. Like, I want more of those. I need to go and find Like, that's an area I never delved into. I need to go and find more. I know. Yeah, Spider Man <laughs> India. Yeah, all good. Like, I'm all for like British Spider Man and Indian Spider Man. Yeah, I'm going for finding that. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the French one? Um, baguette? Excelsior! 
So yeah, that was the five minute Marvel. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we'd already had that one pre-recorded before Chris had to, uh, to go for family stuff. So Craig, yeah, you know what's coming. Uh-huh. What's on your joysticks? Well, I've kind of got two. So there's one okay. which I've not yet started playing, but it's been on my list and I've been waiting for it to come out for ages, which is okay. Terra Nil. I played one of the early betas. Yes. That game looks so relaxing. It does. So it sort of describe it describes itself as a reverse city builder. And the idea Oh, of, I like that. Yes. I hadn't heard that. And the idea of the game is you start off, each level is a barren wasteland. Mm-hmm. And your job is to essentially um, restore the ecosystem. So bring back water, minerals, plant life, and fauna and flora. Mm-hmm. And obviously you have to balance this because the machines you use also do their own sort of damage to the environment. So it's sort of puzzling how to work it out so you can best get the best results. Um, Ooh, yes. Okay. Yes. And it is very, very relaxing. Like great relaxing lo-fi soundtrack. You know, and you know, it's a lovely relaxing game, but it's nice. It's solar punk themed, which I, anyone who knows me knows mm-hmm. I really love. Yeah. I didn't realise that it had that mechanic with the uh, buildings. Yes. Yes, it can be frustrating when you realise, oh, I've overextended the resources and now can't go any further without destroying what I've already made. Ooh, okay. Okay, like, because like, I was aware of this game. Hmm. I didn't realise that those mechanics went so deep, so I need to go and look into that. Yeah. What was the other one? Uh, so the other one was Cereza and the Lost Demon. Cereza and the Lost Demon. So you mentioned this to me just before we started mm-hmm. recording. I have never heard of this. So it's a spin-off of the Bayonetta series. Where you... Ooh, yes. okay. Where you essentially play as the 12-year-old version of the Bayonetta from Bayonetta 3. Oh, okay. And it sort of explains where the Cheshire demon came from and that. And the play style is very different. Mm -hmm. And the sort of mechanics of play tie into the theme of like friendship and coordination quite well. Because the entire... okay. Yeah. Because it's the left Joy-Con controls the demon, and the right Joy-Con controls Cereza. And you have to coordinate them through puzzles. Um, continuing with today's theme of the episode, I do find it incredibly frustrating with my dyspraxia, which mm-hmm. is coordination issues. Um, I find uh, combat extremely hard, where you have to coordinate both of them at the same time quite rapidly. Oh, Okay. Because I was going to ask, with the, with this whole kind of one controls one, one controls the other, could you, in theory, play this as kind of a joint campaign yes. type thing? Yes, you can. It okay. actually makes it a lot easier. Uh, although it's quite interesting, because as the story progresses and unlock more, you can coordinate um, the controllers actually line up so you can control them both at once. As the story progresses, so it ties into like them becoming better friends and better partners, means you can control them more easily. Oh, I see. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Oh, I'm going to have to put that one on my list as well. It is definitely... This list is ever-growing. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely worth a play. Very 
different from Bayonetta. Like, mm. it's very clearly a pre-story. They've kept the whole thing about, like, the witch's hair and how the magic system works. But they've cut out all the BDSM toys and, <laughs> yeah. So, so what they went... <laughs> Is there a kink at pride joke in there somewhere? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Kink belongs at pride. That's all I'm going to say. It's Mm -hmm. Pride Month. Kink belongs at pride. For our regular listeners, I will also say there is an an explanation coming up of why we don't have a queer artist doing the cover art this year. Um, But yeah, okay. No, that sounds really interesting. I am intrigued. Because there's a new Bayonetta game on the horizon as well, isn't there? And Bayonetta is one of those those franchises that I have always loved the art style, but I've never actually had chance. To, well, I say I've not had chance. I've never sat down and picked up one of the games and played them through. It's just been one of those that I've been aware of on the periphery, and I really want to get on to the next one. So this might be a good chance for me to kind of get some background lore. I'm guessing. Oh yeah, it sort of ties in a lot with. Um, Swayze's backstory because if you've played them you know like time travel and multiple dimensions play a big part so Mm. the sort of lore can get a bit confusing Okay, but it is very enjoyable and you don't have to be invested in Bayonetta lore to get to enjoy this as it's standalone story okay alright I'm going to go and look into that so, I've taken up enough time. What's on your joystick? I mean, I, it's going to surprise absolutely nobody who listened to the okay. uh, last episode, but uh, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> like, that game is huge. That game is actually mm-hmm. huge. And I don't have as much time to play it as I would like, but I have already definitely put in well over 10 hours on it. And... I have made basically zero story progress. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard it's very easy to do that. But it is, and it's that thing of just like, okay, so I loved the original Breath of the Wild. Not The story was good, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't for the story. It was the one of the few games that has drawn me in on mechanics alone because everything is so nicely polished. Breath of the Wild is... Sorry, Tales of, uh, Tears of the Kingdom, sorry, not Breath uh-huh. of the Wild. Tears of the Kingdom is... So you're taking this polished item and it's got just that little bit of scuff on it that doesn't ruin it, it just tells a story. Yeah. So you've got that little bit of sort of jankiness in a couple of the abilities, that little bit of sort of... I don't think that's how it was meant to happen or how you saw uh-huh. me doing that sort of that doesn't ruin it it just adds to that experience because i love that thing of being able to get in and just minorly break a system so it works to my favor and so i have very much been enjoying getting in there with the abilities and just kind of screwing around oh yeah i mean this is a thing everyone loves like you always see on open world maps like this is how you can jump so you head up over the mountains easier exactly and i keep seeing videos of people with um really pushing the tears of the kingdom system so like this is how you can glide from one side of the map to the other without ever touching mm-hmm. the earth and mm-hmm. and like some of the things people are building in there oh yeah absolutely but then also i i <laughs> i can't take credit for this but like some of the um 
Well, the Geneva Convention violations that have been uh, taken with regards to the Korogs, because, my God, there are some people out there that are torturing those poor creatures. Geneva Convention. And I feel bad laughing about it, but it's kind of funny seeing how inventive some of these things are. Yeah, it's more like Geneva Convention, more like Geneva Suggestion. Well, it's it's the whole um, it's the, the whole Pirates of the Caribbean thing, isn't it? It's just like yeah. the code is more of a guideline. Oh well, yeah, it's like <laughs> we know this about people. It's like, have you ever played The Sims? You ultimately oh, will end up yeah. torturing them. The Sims was one of my one of my first uh, chances to explore my uh, gay gay uh, side. <laughs> like finally having you know two guys become boyfriends. Oh, the scandal! Like I didn't think. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> One of those things where you look back and go, the signs were there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, Breath of the Wild is what's been on my uh, joysticks this week. And there's, like that's pretty much all that's been on there. Apart from like the odd mobile game, but I don't tend to get into those. No. I mean, with a game like Tears of the Kingdom, you want it to last. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, that's my joystick for this week. So, thank you ever so much, Craig, for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Joining us, joining me, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) So, quick chance to uh, throw out a quick pun. uh, Quick pun? Quick plug. You can make a pun if you want. A quick plug where people can find you, etc. So, in my personal account, I am bootblackcub, all one word. Um, That's pretty much Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon etc um for my podcast that is the kinky boys podcast wherever good podcasts are found and yeah so that's me and i highly recommend going and having listened to kinky boys mm-hmm. like i've been over on there before chris has been over there before like it's always mm-hmm. a good time when we get to collaborate so thank you very much for stepping in the last oh, minute for me i've enjoyed I it really so much. appreciate it <laughs> um but yeah i i alluded to this a little bit earlier sort of usually in pride month mm-hmm. i will have a sort of lgbt artist come in and redo our album art for the month That has not happened this year. The reason that hasn't happened this year is I have been a little bit focused elsewhere. um, And this is kind of the first time we're announcing it. So TB&J now actually has a home on the internet. So uh, you can now go to tbnjpodcast.com if you want to find any of our socials, etc. We have a link to Greg's show over in there in amongst friends of the show. Please go over and check them out. Absolutely. I have been Sai. Thank you very much for stepping in, Craig. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) We shall catch you all in the next episode. Bye. Bye. This episode of the Teabags and Joysticks podcast has been edited by TB and J Sai. Special thanks to Craig from Kinky Boys for hosting. The music is Quarter Conundrum by DOAK, and the soundboard consists of royalty-free audio. Thank you for listening.